The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good afternoon. Nice to be here. I want to start just by um, thanking you, Kim, for creating the space and bringing us together and, and such a beautiful way and having the contributions of Ruby and Mirka and myself. And particularly for the topic, which as I think we've all recognized in being here today is, is not one that's talked about in our society or culture. And even, even in our spiritual communities a lot, um, as lay practitioners, there can be this word taboo. Renunciation itself can be a kind of a taboo. And so it's great to just kind of break that and start to talk about it and see, like, what is the relevance for us? How do we understand it and work with it in our practice? Um, a number of my main teachers have been monastics or renunciates, Anagarika Manindraji um, being one of my first teachers. Um, my, my other first teacher was a Sri Lankan man by the name of Godwin, Samara Ratne, who some of you may have known or have heard about, who was not an Anagarika, but was a lay renunciate. He wore white. He did not shave his head. He lived on the Ten Precepts, which means that he, didn't, he handled money, but he didn't own money. He didn't own anything. Um, and... I, I spent about two and a half years as an Anagarika in the Thai forest tradition uh, here in the West, which Josh, who's joining us here today from IRC with some of the other resident volunteers, also spent time training as an Anagarika. And um, in looking back, I recognize that that decision was influenced, I think, by the fact that my first two teachers had such a strong impression on me and were renunciates in this liminal space of not quite being a monastic, but not being a lay person either. So I'll, t- I'll talk about that in a little bit, just sort of my own journey and, and some of the learnings and um, transformations that came out of that time. But first, I just want to offer a few other reflections just to kind of build on everything that's been shared today um, and highlight some of the things that, that we've already discovered together or talked about. And the first is really to just you know, name again how strongly we're going against the current of everything we hear and receive in our society and our cultural conditioning. Um, Everything that's telling us that our success, our self-worth is dependent on how much we have, how much we accumulate. And the sense of identity of who we are is tied up with all of those externals
I was in the airport with um, one of my monastic teachers a few years ago, and there was a store in the sort of shopping plaza, and the name of the store was Indulge. <laughs> and it was just so like the epitome of our culture, right? Or the name of one of the one of these car, one of the cars is called Crave. You know, so it's really it's just we're bombarded by it, and. Um, I've really been enjoying the progression of this day from looking at renunciation in the external towards the internal, and it's really how I understand the whole trajectory of the path of, of spiritual progress and awakening. And if we look at the teachings very closely, we can actually see and trace the thread of renunciation from the very beginning of how the Buddha teaches lay people with, with uh, generosity. And recognizing that what's needed to be generous is some sense of letting go, some sense of giving something up. We look at the practice of sila, of virtue, of conduct, of ethics in our life. What's needed to maintain a certain sense of ethical integrity is to let go of certain drives, to let go of certain habits, certain actions, and to say, to say no inside. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to put that down. So there's a renunciation that's involved. So I'd like to invite you to just try something with me that I find very useful in, in looking at this, um, this aspect of practice of renunciation. So just take your hand, if you will, and just make a fist and just hold it for a little bit. And put some energy into holding that. And notice as you're holding the clenched fist, first that it requires effort, right? You have to actually be doing something. And then at a certain point, it, it stops taking as much effort, right? It's there already. It takes some effort to do it, but it's kind of going on its own. Now when you're ready... Stop making the effort to make a fist. Allow the hand to relax. And now very slowly try to open the fingers. Right? You notice what happens. They're kind of stuck in that position, right? So there's a lot that we can learn from this. There's a lot that we can learn from this about letting go. So if we had more time, I might sort of engage in a dialogue and hear about your experience. But I just want to point out a few things and then share some other reflections. So the first thing that I notice here is that letting go is not a doing. Holding is a doing. Letting go is, is a stopping of an action that's already happening. How do we stop that action? It's, it's a relaxing. So renunciation, in a certain sense, there's a naturalness of it. There's a, it's, it's a... It's a letting go of something that's already holding. But then what we notice is once it's been held long enough, even when we stop putting more energy into it, it's stuck in that position, right? 
So I think there's a lot that we can understand about our heart and our mind and how it works in this very simple exercise to say, what does it take to release a muscle that's been chronically held, that's been chronically contracted? Well, first we have to be aware of it. First we have to actually become aware that there's a holding. And then there's actually a stopping of putting energy into it. And then the opening that happens, it happens over time. It's not something we can't force it open. And so in this sense, there are two things that I want to highlight. The first is that with all of these renunciation practices we've been talking about, looking at our relationship with sense pleasure, with objects, with status, with identity, on one level, it's not so much what we give up. It's not what we're letting go of. It's that we're learning how, we're, we're learning a new action. We're learning how to release holding. We're familiarizing our mind and our heart with what it's like to let go. We're remembering that we have that capacity as human beings. We have that capacity to go, oh, to stop contracting, identifying, forming around anything. And we familiarize ourselves more and more with that capacity to release. And it's that capacity to release that then carries us through and and is applied to deeper and deeper and more subtle and subtle levels of the heart-mind. And this is why the the pinnacle of the teachings, Nibbana, is is called the reality of non-grasping. The reality of non-grasping. So it's not something we can get. It's not something we can hold. I heard Zen Master Sansunim speak in New York City before he passed away, and he would, he would say, everybody got enlightenment? And then laugh and laugh. <laughs> <laughs> ha, 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 you got enlightenment? So there's this, there's this fundamental shift in our orientation that runs through the whole thread of practice. It's the shift from our unquestioned assumption, our misperception that some fulfillment will come about through this action, through grasping, through reaching, through getting, through having, through becoming something. And there's a fundamental shift that recognizes there's something else we can do with our life. There's another orientation that's about not doing that and that it's in that space of non-grasping that the heart is actually fulfilled, that we actually discover contentment that there's a deep inner satisfaction that can well up when, when that action is no longer driving us habitually or unconsciously. And so in this sense, one of the themes that we've been sort of dancing around and naming in different ways this whole day is, is this tension between renunciation as, as lack, as deprivation, and renunciation as fulfillment, as contentment. And it's like they're two sides of the same coin or two, they're from two perspectives, from the worldly perspective that views our happiness as being based on getting and having, renunciation is, is scary. It's about not having, it's about lack. From the perspective of renunciation, from the perspective of non-grasping, it's about fulfillment. My teacher says that um, the rarest human experience isn't bliss. It's contentment. So what is it that we let go of? 
it's, it's the feeling of not enough. It's the feeling of wanting something to somehow satisfy me, to fill me up, to make me feel better, make me feel complete, finally. It's the experience of absence. That's what we're letting go of. That's what we're renouncing. And from that perspective, it's about fulfillment. So this turning of the mind from the orientation to get to the orientation to release, this is the fundamental shift of the practitioner, whether we're monastic, anagarika, upasaka, layperson, is this shift in our orientation. And for me, in my own life, in my own practice, I've seen how there's, there's a naturalness in the progression of that shift and then there's also effort and energy that's, that's required. And I'll say a bit more about what I mean by that. So, we need a reference point to recognize that we're holding. If this is all we've ever done, we have no, we have no way of knowing that there's something else. So a one monk, there's a story of one monk who came to Ajahn Chah's monastery, and in, in the way he was following the vinya, the codes of conduct, he was handling money. And he said to Ajahn Chah, well, I, handle, I use money, but I'm not attached. And Ajahn Chah laughed and said, yeah, right, get out of here, basically. And he said, That's, you know, it's not possible you know, for you to, to be in that space. So how do we know if we're attached to something? How do we know if this is happening? Well, try looking at what happens when you don't have what you want, when you don't get what you want. That's how you'll know if you're attached. If there's reactivity... Well, then there's attachment there. So we need a reference point. We need something to actually kind of ping off of to, to notice, oh, I'm stuck here. I'm holding on here. And so this is, the val- this is, this is where the practices of restraint, uh, sense restraint, of formal renunciation, of the eight precepts, of sila, of the uposita, this is some of the strength of following a form of having a training is that it gives us something to push up against, up against, to notice where we're stuck, where we're holding, where we're attached, where we haven't let go. Otherwise, how do we know? It's very easy to feel unattached when we get what we want, right? At the same time, the, this the capacity to, to open, to let go, develops in a very from my perspective and experience, it develops in a very natural and, and organic way through our practice where what we let go of at each stage is just, it's the learning edge so we don't have to push ourselves beyond based on some idea that we have about how we should be, which is another theme that's come up. And so for me, um, taking on the training of an anagarika in the, in the monastic setting, which is much more than just following the eight precepts, I'll say a little, about, a little bit about that, was a very natural progression. Up until a year or two prior when I started spending time in the monasteries, I never ever would have considered that I would be shaving my head and wearing all white and living in a monastery and not listening to music or having sex or going out with my friends. Or I was a musician, I was dating, I was very engaged and involved in the world. Never, never would have crossed my mind. But when the time came, it actually, it was very natural. It wasn't like this huge thing, like the quote that Kim said at the beginning, you know, 
this lay person says, for, for us lay people, renunciation appears like a precipice, like a sheer drop-off, and my heart does not leap up. And then the Buddha reflected on that and said, well, yeah, you know, actually, before I was enlightened, I had the same experience. I actually recognized, gee, renunciation and solitude are really helpful things. These are really useful, but my heart doesn't leap up. It doesn't find peace and contentment and joy in that thought. Why not? And then he looks and he recognizes, he says, well, you know, it's actually, it's because I haven't really studied and understood the limits and the drawbacks of sensory experience of the world nor have I understood and examined the benefits of renunciation. And so over time, as we practice, as we really investigate, and I'm sure that each of you here in this room has some taste of this, otherwise we wouldn't be here, we start to understand, gee, that doesn't really do it for me anymore, you know? And there's something else that's more fulfilling. The more we familiarize ourselves with that and stay with that theme, it deepens, and then the, and then the renunciation, the letting go, is a natural result of that because there's understanding. So that's the purpose of insight. We, call it, we talk about insight meditation. Insight, the purpose of insight is to let go. When you see clearly, we let go, and then there's freedom and peace in that. So for me, taking the robes is a very natural progression, and I, I had enough practice experience to recognize the, the tenacity of the patterns and habits in the mind, and I wanted more training. I wanted more support, the support of a community, of a form, to, to make my whole life my practice, to really see, well, what is it like to actually really have full support to do that? So Ajahn Virodhamma, who's uh, one of the abbots I spent time training with, one of the things he said is, in monastic life, which is the epitome of this shift, he says, we shift we, from the freedom to satisfy our desire, which is what we as lay people enjoy, the freedom to satisfy our desire, we give up certain things in order to have the freedom to study desire. Monastics let go of a lot, but the freedom they gain is the freedom to investigate and to study the heart and the mind. And so he says renunciation is giving up the tendency to always try to maximize pleasure. Right? Just notice how true that rings, how much of our, our whole life is organized around this principle of maximizing pleasure. And what's it like to recognize that there's another way of being? So in the monastery, um, how many people here other than Josh and I have spent time in robes? I'm curious, in any tradition. Is there anyone else who's been a monastic of some sort? Okay, because there often are, so I didn't want to make that assumption. Um, it's more than just giving up sex and dinner and extra sleep and movies and music. Um, It's actually this turning of the mind towards freedom, towards understanding the tendencies of how it operates. So there's, there's autonomy. You let go of a certain level of autonomy about your schedule, when you get up, what you do during the day, choice about your work, you're assigned work. You're told where to go. You're told what to do. Um, a certain amount of power in, in your position, the whole monastic structure is hierarchical. And as an anagarika, regardless of your age or how much practice you've done, you're at the bottom. You're in a service role. So I was 33 or 34 when I ordained. And there were monks who were younger than me, who had less practice experience than me, and they were my senior. <laughs> 
and I deferred to them. And so that's a practice. That's a practice of letting go. It's a practice of recognizing, of seeing. We don't see where we're stuck until we're challenged, of seeing like, oh, gee, I'm actually kind of identified with that. There's a practice within the monastic tradition of admonishment, is the way it's, it's translated, which is giving feedback, basically. And so the, the more senior members of the monastic community will train the more junior members in the form as well as in the practice and offer feedback. And so um, depending on your personality condition and conditioning and your role, this, this can be very complicated in different ways. As a white male, a straight white male, I feel very comfortable speaking up because that's, that's the conditioning I've received in our society. That's, that's the role I've, I've been sort of privileged to have. So for me to receive feedback and to just be able to say thank you and not defend myself or explain why or offer a different point of view was a real training in letting go. Now, I recognize that for someone else who has different conditions in their social status or their role or their gender, that would be very different. And actually that training could actually be detrimental to not speak up, right? So it's contextual. But for me, there's a huge letting go in that. One of the most profound experiences of renunciation and letting go that I, that I had in that experience was of identity. So all of the clothes, no longer any choice in what you wear. All of the hair, I had a beard beforehand, so all of the facial hair. And in, in the monasteries, in the, in the Thai forest tradition, the Ajahn Chah lineage from Thailand, we shave our eyebrows too. So the whole appearance changes. I remember looking in the mirror and not recognizing myself, feeling like I look like a ghost. My name. At a certain point in monastic training, one gets a Pali name. So the whole identity structure shifts. So it was this letting go, but this huge sort of like cleaning, like cleaning the slate like actually getting to put down everything I'd known about who I am, what my role is, what I have to be, who I have to be, and actually starting fresh, which was a great freedom to do that. And then from that space, I spent about two and a half years in white, actually getting to really examine in a new light, well, what, what do I really want? Independent of the expectations of society, or the ideas I've had about who I am or what I should be or what I should do or what I should accomplish. How do I want to live in the world? Taking periods of renunciation where we set, set aside our role, our identity for a certain period of time, allows us to step out and reevaluate things from a clean slate and actually source from within what matters to us. And as, as Ruby was saying, what principles do we use to guide our choices? And the monastery is a particularly powerful place to do this because, as I was saying earlier, everything in society is telling us who we are, who we should be, how we should be. We're bombarded with this. And in the monastery, all of the signals are telling you something else. Part of the practice is bowing. Any room where you come into where there's a Buddha image or an elder you bow three times when you enter, you bow three times before you exit, before every meal, before every puja. So there's a lot of bowing, and it's like it stops you. There's, there's so much emphasis on the restraint of the activities of the mind and the body that 
everything is pointing back to saying, slow down, wait, pause, take some time, consider, reflect, remember who you are, why you're here, what matters. So it's very different messages and the whole community is supporting that. You're in a community where there's the, the baseline assumption and agreement is sila, non-harming which is not the baseline agreement in our society. That's different, and that creates a very different space for the heart. And these, these are the practices and the fruits of renunciation. As I was saying earlier, ethical conduct is a practice of renunciation. We have to let go a lot to be ethical. We have to let go of what we want for ourselves and recognize, no, that's going to have consequences on someone else and on my own mind. So there's a lot more I could say about the gifts of being in that kind of a training environment, the level of simplicity, the joy of devotion, the sense of relationship and connection with the lineage. And just another sort of point that occurred to me as we were sitting here together today was when I, when I look at, at, the, uh, at the Buddha Rupa, at a statue, you know, I think about the amount of letting go that the person who started this whole tradition ha- had to uh, achieve inside, and the, the generations of practitioners who have let go significantly in order to preserve the teachings so that we have access to them. So we're, we're, we, we, we inherit the benefits of the practice of renunciation of so many people and that we can feel connected to that and draw strength from that in our own practice, that we're not doing this alone. Another thing that came out of the time that I was there was actually starting to then notice, I talked about this sort of um, deconstruction or, or, or dismantling of the identity, and then seeing how over time it reforms around the new name, around the new role, around the new costume, right? And this is getting to what Kim was talking about before, that the real renunciation is the inner renunciation. It's not about the clothes we wear. It's, ab- it's about what we're doing inside in our heart and our mind, and are we, are, we, are we forming, are we taking a stand on something, are we identifying with a certain position, with being someone, with being the star of our own movie? with our position, with our viewpoint. So in undertaking a period of training where we're renouncing certain things very explicitly, we come up against our edges, we see where we're holding on, and then through, the, through, through diligence, through patience, through determination, through commitment, through support, things start to shift. We learn that we can do that. We learn that we have that capacity to let go. And then through that, some of our actual preferences and habits change and shift. You start to see that the tendency of the mind to go in a certain direction starts to change. It can soften, it can weaken, it can turn. There were many reasons for me um, for not staying in the monastic setting don't really have the time to talk about that now. I'm in the process of writing some about that. If you're interested, you can look on my website and 
over time there'll be a series of pieces on the process of ordaining renunciation and coming back to lay life and what was learned and the reasons for that. Um, I think in, in some of the time that's remaining, I, I want to leave space for some questions and discussion, but also maybe I'll just mention a few of the other supports and, pra- and for practices of renunciation that I've found helpful. Um, so really contemplating, really contemplating um, this realm that we live in. There's one of the five daily reflections that's recommended for um, all practitioners is all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Many of you know this. It's so powerful. It's chilling. And it's not meant to be a downer. It's not meant to be depressing. It's meant to release our heart. It's, it's that, that quote that Kim said from Suzuki Roshi, true renunciation is in recognizing that things go away. So familiarize ourselves with this. You know, the Buddha encouraged us to think about this daily. Everything we love and have will leave us. So what does that mean for how we relate to it, the kind of care that we take? Reflecting on death, really recollecting your own death and contemplating it puts perspective on things. How important is it to, to really hold on to this grudge? or to have my way here when we think about what really matters in the light of our own death. Powerful practice for renunciation. Renunciation also requires a certain amount of of wisdom, of looking carefully at our motives, which has come up today, really recognizing what's wise for us right now, what's too much, what's, what's beyond what's going to be useful. So what's, what's the appropriate amount to work with? That's a very helpful quality. And then also strengthening the heart. So um, cultivating the wholesome qualities that we've talked about that, that buoy the heart, that allow us um, to withstand the pressure of our pull towards what we want, right? It's not, we don't let go in a vacuum. There needs to be something else supporting us from within. And so cultivating qualities like patience, like loving kindness, like calm, stability of mind. These are very important for being able to resist the strength of, um, of our mind's habits. I think I'll, I'll end with one of my favorite Um, explanations of this tension, this process between letting go and and what buoys us, what allows us to let go. One of the structures that you find in the suttas very often is by relying on this, one abandons that. And so this is that sense of naturalness, that it's not a precipice, it's not a sheer drop-off, right? That it's staged, it's gradual. And so, you know, just look at, your, look at your behavior in terms of ethics and maybe where you were 10 years ago and recognize that now it's not that hard probably, right? 
because there's something else from within that supports you, that you're relying on, that allows you to let go of that. So this is from Ajahn Sachito. He says, actually, letting go requires holding. Not exactly holding on, but holding or being held. You're held with awareness, held with tenderness, held with patience, held with this beautiful firmness that's not savage or harsh, but just held carefully. And in the holding carefully, holding tenderly, holding with clarity, something in us starts to feel that, and we begin to relax. This occurs through your nerve endings, not just as an idea. Letting go requires holding, being held. There's some presence that you feel that you can release yourself into. Otherwise, you actually don't release. So we have a few minutes, maybe just a couple of minutes, if there are any comments or questions. And I just want to thank you for your practice and for your attention. I'll read another quote. (laughs) This is uh, from someone outside the Buddhist tradition, which I love just because it recognizes that there's wisdom and realization, you know, sort of across across cultures and traditions. This is from uh, Ramakrishna. He says that the only authentic renunciation that can clear away obstacles to spiritual progress is to abandon once and for all this constant drive for self-perpetuation, this instinctive urge to survive and dominate, which manifests in so many subtle and obvious forms, including the obsession with becoming holy or elevated. (laughs) And so I think in this whole day long, in this discussion, it's come up already, but just to reemphasize that, watch out for that. Watch out for that idea that we create and then judge ourselves against and strive to become. That actually letting go of that is part of it. Letting go of any sense of who we need to become. Right? That's another form of, of this action of trying to hold, trying to get. Yeah, Pam. And then I think we're going to take a break. Um, what kind of, uh, you said you were uh, given jobs to do. Um, jobs to do. Right. Um, I know during that time you were teaching. Right. Was, was, were you, what kind of jobs were you given to do? Oh, thank you. Yeah, so I was in a very sort of unusual role as an Anagarika for a variety of circumstances, some of them being due to health. But I, I was not stationed at one monastery the whole time the way Josh was, which in some ways is a more intensive training. So there's, there's even more of a letting go of sort of like, I'm not going to even go anywhere based on my own choosing. I had, I had some of the freedom. So I was doing something more like what Manindraji did, was moving in and out of the monastic environment. So I spent five or six months at Chithurst training and then another eight or nine months at Tisarana training. Um, 
and while I was at the monastery, within that structure, I was following the sort of requests from the rest of the monastic community to say, you're on kitchen today, you're going to be raking leaves today, you're going to be washing the bus today, you know, you're going to be cleaning the toilets this week, just whatever's needed. That kind of job. Those kinds of chores and jobs within the community. And then when I was outside of the monastery, I was teaching um, and visiting family or so forth. Yeah, thank you, Pam. Okay, so do you want to say a word or we're just taking a break now? Oh, great. Um, one thing I wanted to say actually was um, if you wanted to taste the experience um, of living in a monastery without making the formal commitment uh, to go into white and become an Anagarika, you can do that by visiting the monastery. And you become part of the community, part of the daily life, and you're assigned your job. Um, you live on the eight precepts, um, and you're very much part of the community. So you can get a sense of what it's like to let go of daily life, not in a retreat setting, but in a monastic setting where, um, you know, you're not in silence. It's a, it's a very different sort of container. And I would encourage you to try it, actually. It's quite a beautiful experience. And you get to spend time with monastics and get to know them as people. And sometimes some of the idealization of monastic life can drop away as well. When you see the reality. As well as the inspiration. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and mostly I just wanted to thank everyone for coming and, um, and for your interest. Um, I think it's incredible that we can even think about this, as Oren's been saying, in, in the culture that we live in. And I think it's very healthy for our culture that we can hold this and start to think about ways of, of moving against that stream um, that has caused and is causing so much harm and suffering in the world. So thank you all for your openness and and your practices.